You are loved, my man. Am I on? Well, how you doing? You sound like New Yorkers today. This is really good. On cue, how you doing? You know, it's unbelievable. You guys sound great. You know, I am a Yankee fan, but I say this morning, who day? Who day? Bring your Bengals jersey. That's what I say. Uh, it's going to be good. Bring your jerseys next week or a team of your choice. And uh, it's going to be a good, good Sunday. Uh, but good morning, COS. Well, I want to welcome everyone online, watching online as well, too. Uh, thanks for joining us. I know you, you have a lot of things that you could be doing, but thank you for making COS a part of your family, part of your discipleship, part of your journey with Jesus Christ. I want to welcome everyone here this morning. Listen, if you haven't, for those of you that know me, maybe you don't know this about me, but you should. I'm a sort of an all-in, passionate type of guy about a lot of things. And I'm just passionate about so, so many things. New York pizza, things like that. But most of all, I'm passionate about the things of God. I really am passionate about the things of God. I'm passionate about prayer, about, uh, about getting in God's presence, about about praying to God, about corporate prayer, about intercessory prayer, about prayer meetings, and just being, being a part of, of a prayer church. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that prays. And I'm, and I'm really passionate about it. I'm passionate about the Word of God. I love this book. I love the Word of God. Uh, it's, God speaks to me through this book, and I'm passionate about leading people in that book, discipling people in that book. I'm passionate about the presence of God. I'm passionate about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer, I am passionate about. And speaking of prayer, the Word of God, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, you put all that together, you've got a recipe for revival. And I'm passionate about revival, and I believe that there's a great awakening coming uh, to our country, to our city, and why not here at COS? I believe that as, as God's people pray, as God's people repent and turn from their wicked ways, seek his face, I believe that revival is going to break out. I'm passionate about that. I can't wait. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. And I don't want to miss it. I'm passionate about seeing people find the abundant life that Jesus Christ died for. Because if you're not living the abundant life that Jesus died for, you're living underneath your privilege as a child of the king. I'm also passionate about helping broken and hurting people uh, find freedom from sin, from pain, from, from their past, from hurts, from strongholds. And then watching them walk in freedom. Watching God recycle all their pain, somehow make them a trophy of his grace, and then send them out so that they can make disciples and then those disciples make other disciples. And I'm really, really passionate about that. I'm also passionate about this church. I'm really, really passionate. I'm blessed to be here. I hope you are too. I'm blessed to be on this staff. I love our staff. I love our board. I love the fact uh, that we champion the institution of marriage here at COS. I just love that. I love the fact that we invest in marriages and we help them thrive and we help them grow. I love the fact that there are so many strong marriages on staff. So, so important. Love, love to watch Steve and Sue. Love, love, love to watch everyone on staff champion their marriages and put them on display for the world to see what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is all about. Now, one of the ways that we do that, that we invest in marriages here, 
uh, at COS is that we have a ministry, as you see up there, called Grace Marriage. We're going to be talking a lot about Grace Marriage later on in the talk. Uh, and, and speaking of Grace Marriages, uh, in most churches, what you have is only typically two types of ministries for couples or for married couples. You have ministry, if you want to get married, call that pre-marriage counseling. And then we have triage ER rooms when the marriage implodes. Those are typically the only two ministries that churches offer. But grace marriage is very different. It's none of those. It's not a marriage if you're married. It's not a ministry if your marriage is in trouble. It's a ministry so that your marriage doesn't get in trouble. It's a proactive, grace-filled, positive approach of working on the positive, focusing on the positives, addressing issues in your life in a positive way. And I'm going to explain more about that, what that is later on. To help you grow in your pursuit of God and then each other. Really, the formula, Neil talked about it a few weeks ago, grace plus intentionality equals transformation. So I want to talk to you today about the marriage mindset. The mindset, marriage mindset. But I want to give you this disclaimer so you don't check out. This isn't a marriage talk, just a marriage talk. I'm going to be addressing couples for some part of the talk, but mainly this, this is a talk for every single one of us. If you're single, not married, whether you're divorced, whether you never want to get married, uh, whether you're a child, whether you're a teen, whether you're a young adult, whether you're a widow, wherever you are in life, this is a message and a this is a message for all of us, and I believe that God is pursuing all of us to, to realize today that his pursuit and love for us is relentless, and that no matter where we are in life, what our relationships are, that the most important thing that we could ever do is try and match the pursuit that he has for us with his love and love him back the same way. It's a reminder that if we don't pursue God personally with all our heart, mind, soul, and body, then our marriages and all of our individual relationships are going to suffer. See, the measure of your pursuit with God will determine the measure of success we'll have not only in your marriage, but in all your relationships. Now, let's sort of transition here. When you study the Bible, and I hope you love studying the Bible, I hope you brought your Bibles, it's important to look for scriptures that talk about your mind. There are a lot of scriptures that talk about your mind. And when you come across a scripture that mentions your mind, the only response is to make that truth what, what we call a mindset. So if you read a scripture and it says something about the mind and then a truth that follows, the best thing that you can do is believe it, read it, believe it, receive it, and then live it out. And then as we teach at, at Encounter that we're, we're going to be teaching at Midweek Boost for the next 12 weeks to Anchors of the 12 anchors of discipleship, anchor eight, is make God's word the authority over our lives. That means it trumps everything in our lives, our feelings, our emotions, our circumstances, that God's word from Genesis to Revelation, the truth in God's word becomes our mindset. We make it a mindset. In other words, that truth trumps everything else. And so that's what it means uh, to make it a, a, to make that truth a mindset. So this is sort of like a little segment here, sort of like Tips, Bible tips, Bible study tips from Uncle Billy. You know, so that was a little segment of how, when you, a different way to study the Bible. Look for, look for scriptures that talk about the mind, that are mindsets that you can apply to your life. Now, not, not every mindset is actually a good mindset that the Bible talks about. There are some bad mindsets 
So what are some of those bad mindsets? You don't want these mindsets. So the first bad mindset is what we call a carnal mindset. What's a carnal mindset? Well, Romans 8, 5 through 7 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. So what's Paul saying there? Paul is saying this. He's saying if you resist the work of the Holy Spirit, if you rely on yourself, if you rely on your flesh, if you just wake up every day and play God instead of submitting to God and don't allow the person and work and ministry and gifts and manifestation of the Holy Spirit to direct, lead, and guide and counsel your life, you can become carnally minded. The Apostle Paul later on went on to say that some people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. He says, have nothing to do with such people. Why? Because they're carnally minded. They can't think the things of God. They can't see the things of God. They can't lead with the things of God because they're carnally minded. They don't have the spirit leading them in spirit and in truth. Number two, that's a bad mindset to have is a carnal mindset. Number two, a blinded mindset. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You ever wonder why someone that you love, someone that you know that's not a Christ follower, never comes to church, never gives their lives to Christ. You've been praying for them for years. It's because the strong man has a strong hold on them, but it's our job to bind the strong man because we have authority over him. You see, you know what I've discovered? It's not just unbelievers that the God of this age has power over, but sometimes he blinds believers too. Sometimes he blinds believers. Number three, there's what we call a corrupt mindset. 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 6 says, their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. So he's warning against all different forms of Christianity that get away from the basic message of grace through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. And they're all different. And the Apostle Paul knew that there would be all forms of Christianity that would pop up. We're seeing it today. And he's, in this one, he's, he's addressing the prosperity gospel. I mean, there's so many things to be that you need to watch out for. But you know what? The more time you spend submitted to the plans and purposes of God, be led by the Spirit of God, trusting God's word to be the authority over your life, the more you're going to have discernment to know what is true, what is right, and what the true church of Jesus Christ is. And when when truth comes your way, you'll know to receive it and believe it. And And when a false gospel, when a bad gospel comes your way, you'll know to identify it and take that thought captive and have nothing to do with it. So never put yourself in a position where you can be carnal, where you can be blinded, and therefore have a corrupt mindset. And then there's what we call, and these all go together. Number four, there's what we call the hardened mindset, where you have a hard mindset. Not only do you have a hard mind, but you have a hard heart, and the two go together. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, but the people's minds were hardened, and 
And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. So it's not just believing. It's believing, receiving, submitting. It's repenting first. It's totally submitting to the plans and purposes of Jesus Christ. And that veil gets removed and that, that hard heart, that hard mind disappears. And all of a sudden, the tender love of Jesus Christ comes and floods our hearts and our minds and our souls. And then there's a dangerous one here, and you see this a lot. It's called the double-minded mindset. It's when someone prays to God for wisdom, but they, don't really, but they really doubt that God's really answering their prayers. They really doubt that God can speak to them. They really doubt that God loves them and that God's going to give them the best, best pathway. You know, God says, I, you know God, say, God says, I'll provide the best pathway for your life. And God says, come to me with wisdom. But James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, to all. All would be all of us, without fault, without finding fault. And it'll be given to you. Sit right here. You ask for wisdom. God's going to give it, not only just give it, but he's going to give it generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. See, faith is so important. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So the, the antidote to that is by faith. Lord, I need wisdom in this situation. Thank you for giving me that wisdom. And you wait as long as you have to till you get that wisdom, whether it be through God's word, whether it be through hearing his voice, whether it be through another person coming to you in a godly way, giving you a word or counsel, a word of knowledge, whatever it may be, you trust that God is going to give you wisdom in a variety. It could be hundreds of ways that God can give you wisdom. Now, those are bad mindsets. You don't ever want to fall, tr- fall into any of those traps. Here are some good mindsets, like a sober mindset. That's a good, that's a good mindset. Apostle Titus 2, 6-8 says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. What does that look like? In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, not good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. It's good to have a sober mindset. Next, have a renewed mindset. This is important. I love this. See, I believe that the whole essence of Christianity revolves around this scripture as far as discipleship scriptures. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, no change, no transformation is ever going to take place until we constantly renew our minds to the truth of God's word. In other words, the whole essence of Christianity is to allow God to change us We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, every day. We're to add to our faith to make our election and and calling sure. Listen, God wants to change the way I think two days from now, six days from now, six months from now. God wants to change the way I think. You know, so many Christians, I I counsel a lot of people and say, well, it's just like me to be like, I've been like this a long time. And And they always come in my office and I always say, well, for today. You may, be like, you may have been like that a long Well, for today, I've been doing this a long time. You know what I'm saying? I've been, I've been doing it for today. But if you embrace this discipleship pathway 
that God has for you through his word, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, in community with others, if you, if you offer your body a living sacrifice before God, holy and pleasing, each and every day, in light of what God has done for you, because that's the key, don't you know, conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, changed by the re- renewing of your mind, you're going to be on the journey of your life. Number, number eight, this is an important one, a sound mindset. A sound mind. Everyone needs a sound mindset. 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. You know, this evil, wicked, vile spirit of fear has wreaked havoc on the body of Christ for the past couple of years like never before. And I am sick and tired of people living in fear. Fear does not come from God. We don't need to be walking around in fear. And the other thing that the devil wreaks havoc on, he drives people crazy. Or he makes you think you're going crazy. How many of you have said, I think I'm losing my mind? How many of you said that? (laughs) Some of you said it last week. I think I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. Listen, Listen, if you think you're going crazy, you're not going crazy. See, crazy people don't worry about people thinking they're going crazy. They already know that they're crazy. So the fact that you're thinking you know you're going crazy means you're not crazy. So don't worry about it. You ain't crazy. (laughs) Just want to give you that another tip from your Uncle Billy there. Listen, it's important to take those thoughts captive and declare every day, I've got a sound mind. And because I've got a sound mind, I can make good decisions. I can make godly decisions. I can make heavenly decisions. I can make kingdom-minded decisions, kingdom-guided decisions. Man, I'm a transformed soldier for the king that God has not given a spirit of fear. I've got love too. I got power and I got a sound mind. And then you can't do this. And this is an important mindset here. Number nine, the spirit-guided mindset. I always talk about You know, when I disciple people to be spirit-minded, spirit-guided people, you want to be that. Romans 8 says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So that's that carnal Christian. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. See, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Oh, that's a rich word, friends. See, two byproducts of the Holy Spirit working in your life are love and joy. Did you know that? With joy, always following love. If you have love, you have joy. If you know love, you know joy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have love, and therefore you have joy. If you have the Holy Spirit working in you, he will produce love, joy, patience, kindness, self-control, in your life. It's an inside job. And that's why it's called the fruits of the spirit. See, self-help doesn't work. Willpower doesn't work. It's God giving us the will and the power through his Holy Spirit. If you want joy, you've got to accept love before you're able to love because you're incapable of loving until the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ, fills your heart with his Holy Spirit to fill the void that only love can fill. And when that void gets flooded with his love, then you have joy. And you will never know true love until you've been truly forgiven by Jesus. Experience forgiveness, you experience love. Experience love, and you'll experience real joy. Those that have been forgiven much, 
They what? They love much. Love is not an emotion you experience. Love is a person found in a relationship with the son of God who loved you first and loves you more than you could ever love him, yourself, or anyone else. And when you allow that love to come and live inside of you through the Holy Spirit, then you become a person of love and all your relationships will become unstoppable and nothing in all creation will come against your marriage, your relationships, and anything that God has ordained for you to be holy, good, and pleasing. And that's why it's important to have the Holy Spirit and be a spirit-minded, spirit-guided person and have that mindset. Number 10, it's important for this, to have a heaven mindset. Why is it important to have a heaven mindset? Why? This is not our home. We don't live here. This is not our destination. And if we've been born again, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we should have a heaven mindset. If, we, if we're spirit-led, spirit-guided, spirit-minded, kingdom-led, kingdom-guided, we have a heaven mindset. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. In other words, since then, there was a death, burial, and resurrection. Since then, you are no longer the same. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new person. You no longer are part of this world. Your destination is heaven. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died to that life. And when Christ is your life, remember this. Keep this. We're going to be hitting this in in a couple of minutes. When, When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, if you put all those mindsets together, the good ones, and apply it to your marriage, you're going to have a great marriage. Matter of fact, you can't have a great marriage without those, without those mindsets. So that is what we're going to be talking about, a marriage mindset, a marriage mindset. See, a marriage mindset person sets his or her mind to passionately pursue God first before they pursue each other. It's so important. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 63. I want to show you something in Psalm 63. A friend of mine called me from California. We did a little Bible study over the phone. Showed something to me that just so, so amazing. So the context here is David is running again. He's running from one of his sons, Absalom. There's some family dysfunction going on. One of his daughters, Tamar, was actually sexually assaulted by her half-brother. David didn't do anything about it. His other son, Absalom, was really, really upset that David didn't do anything. And David has a history of, not, of just being complacent. We're going to be talking about that in a couple minutes. And Absalom goes after his dad. David's running again, and he finds himself in this desert, and he sort of has a moment of clarity. And he has this moment where he realizes his pursuit of running away can never match the pursuit of how God runs to him. And so he's coming back. I believe it's a come to Jesus, come to the Father moment for David. And here's what he writes. He says this, O oh God, you are my God. 
Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Notice those three words. Earnestly, thirsts, and longs. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He's remembering his days in the temple where the manifestation of God was so tremendous. And I'm so grateful again to be a part of a presence-based church. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Now watch what he says next. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you and I will praise you as long as I live. Now sometimes we just read a scripture and we say, hey, that's, you know, that's, that's really good. But I don't want you to miss what he's saying there. He's, David is, is sort of relentlessly, recklessly, now his love for the Father is sort of raging in a, in a good way. It's just, it's just it, I, I believe at this moment in, in, in his life, he's realizing that God's love for him is so, so powerful. And, and now his love for the Father is so, so powerful. And David, David is sort of saying, there, your love, he's, your love, Father, your love is better than life. Your love is better than my life. Your love is better than my marriage. Your love is better than my relationships. Your love is better than my kingdom. Your love is better than all of Israel. Your love is better than anything I could ever go through, I could ever want. Nothing is better than your love for me. That's what he's saying. Your love is better than life. And so, and, and so much, and so many of us put our lives in front and in place of God's love, where God's love is so much better than our lives and our relationships. And so David is recklessly pursuing God again. Even in his running, I believe he's turning back to God. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I mean, he's just it's just a moment where he realized the relentless love of God. There is nothing, there is nothing like it. And, and, and I, I, I love this about, about David because David gives me hope. You know why? Because I'm so grateful that the Bible is full of people who have blown it big time. And David sort of blew it big time. This is just another little example of, of, of how he blew it. But we all know about some other things that, that he did that he blew it really, really bad. But he also did some great, great things. But, you know, that didn't affect his legacy. You know, I, I, I think of the first, you know, thing I ever said about David. He said, this is the son of Jesse, God said. He, he is a man after my own heart. So think about that. It's the first thing I ever said about David, that he's a man after God's own heart. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Next thing that God said, he will do everything I tell him to do. Now, did David do everything God told him to do? No. But he's still a man after God's own heart. The last thing he ever said about David was that the Bible says in the book of Acts was he served God's purpose in his generation, and then he died. He served God's purpose in his generation, and then he died. So listen, the first thing and last thing ever said, those, those book and statements about David were great, great statements. But in between those statements... He sort of had some setbacks. He sort of had some major catastrophes. He sort of had some major sins. He sort of had some major, major failures. And just like David, many of us 
whether we start out good, whether we start out bad, something happens along on this journey called life, maybe in our marriages as well, where we get detoured, we get derailed, we get sidetracked. For many of us, the setback, the depression, the hopelessness, the fear, the stronghold never starts with something major. David knows a lot about giants, and just like those giants, our giants don't become giants overnight. And our personal catastrophes typically don't happen overnight either. And there's a predictable pattern that always follows when we're not all in. I call them the terrible seas. And if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. Here's the first C, complacency. See, giants start lurking when we get complacent and comfortable. When we say, that's ah, okay. I don't need to work on my marriage. My marriage is just fine. We don't need to take it to another level. Besides, we're not arguing about that thing that we argued about. We just stopped talking about it. We're in a really good place. You see, you're either running to the cross or running from the cross. And before long, if you're not careful, complacency will have you drifting from God. You see, an idle mind is the devil's workshop, and an idle marriage, not pursuing God both passionately first, is an open invitation to the devil to come into your home, come into your marriage. You don't ever want to get complacent. You don't ever want to get passive. There's no, I've arrived. There's always another level that you have to get to. There's always growing. There's always knowledge. There's always a place that God wants to get to. And it happens in a, in a passionate, personal pursuit of God's love. You see, complacency, if you're not careful, will lead to confusion. That's the second C. In this phase, we begin to rationalize and play mental games with ourselves. We say things like, well, maybe... We're not really that bad. I can handle it. And that's the phase where we start to lose discernment, good judgment. Because those are the first things that disappear when we stop running after God, right? The Bible says this in Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow his precepts have good understanding. How many people want as much wisdom and understanding as you can get? I do. It starts, the, the beginning of that is the fear of the Lord which means the passionate pursuit of God to never, ever let him down. You see, a great marriage is not based on the pursuit of happiness, but on the pursuit of God. But on the pursuit of God. See, those who fear the Lord have a continual awareness of him, a deep reverence for him, a sincere commitment to obey him because of the gratitude that they have. Now listen, if you don't allow head knowledge to translate into heart actions, you can turn into what the Bible calls a spiritual fool, or as I like to call it, a spiritual idiot, because you're not living out biblical truth that's translated into hard actions that you're demonstrating through servant leadership and loving each other the same way Jesus loves us. I know a lot of people with spiritual knowledge, but they don't, but they don't, they don't let it go from here to here to here to here to live it out. You got to be really, really careful not to let these deadly phases Creep into your life, into your marriage, into your relationships. The next C is compromise. Complacency and confusion always going to lead to compromise. When you get to this phase, you're going to return to risky situations that always get you into trouble. Maybe it's the bar. Maybe it's the mall. Maybe it's that site you shouldn't be on. Maybe it's that website 
maybe it's that friend request you know you shouldn't accept. Whatever it is. You go, you go to those unsafe places. Let's take a trip to Vegas because the shows are really good. All these things that you convince yourself. You see, when you place yourselves in those environments, you're going to make poor choices. And, and may begin with little compromises. But it won't be long before it unravels. And all the ground that has been gained is lost because you're feeding your giant instead of defeating your giant. And God has called you to defeat your giant, not feed your giant. Now let me add a serious symptom of, that I like to call the compromising phase. Often when you're making compromises, you're making unhealthy comparisons. And when you're making unhealthy comparisons, typically you make codependent critiques so you don't have to work on you. And when you let denial convince you that you don't have to work on you, you don't have to work on your marriage, then you're going to compare. You're going to judge a ministry. You're going to judge a couple. You're going to, oh, we're not like, those, we're not like them. But we're all like them. And the more you compare, the more you're going to compromise. And the more that giant of denial is going to get bigger and bigger. All because you're not focused on you and allowing God to heal and change you. Which brings you to the fourth phase. It's a deadly phase. It's catastrophe. Boom, it's when the bottom drops out. But here's the thing you've got to realize and understand. The catastrophe phase is not the disaster. It's just the destination that complacency is always going to lead you to. That's what it is. And when you study the life of David, and he gets off to this great start of defeating this giant, becoming king of Israel, routing the armies of Israel, the Philistines, over and over and over again. Hate those Philistines. They're like, I grew up in New York City. We had what we call roaches. In Harlem, they call them cockroaches. You can't kill these things. Atomic bombs, they, cockroaches still come. Philistines were like that. You can defeat them. A week later, they're back at your doorstep. But David annihilated them every single time. Everything is going great for David. David is a warrior. He's a king. He's on the front lines. He's not a stay-at-home guy. He's not a passive guy. But for some reason, David finds himself in, in, in a compromising place. You, many of you know the story. David's hanging out, walking around on his roof one day. He shouldn't have been on his roof. And he's on this roof and he sees a girl. The girl's name is Bathsheba. See, the name Bathsheba in the original language means oath and voluptuous. You get the picture, right? David probably didn't know that. He just saw this girl. He says, I'm going to, a girl named Sheba, I'm going to take a bath with that Sheba girl. That's all David thought about. And the name, and because David, a married guy with a married girl, locked eyes, all it took was just one look. David has sex with her. David gets her pregnant. David has her husband killed because that's what every man after God's own heart who served God's purpose in his generation does, right? No, no is right. What a catastrophe, right? But that wasn't a catastrophe. You see, that was just a destination that complacency led him to. If you got your Bibles, go backwards to 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 11, I want you to go there, camp there, because I want you to underline five words in your Bible that I never want you to ever forget. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So, for some reason, at, in, the spring, in the spring, when winter broke, by the way, I can't wait for winter to break here. Amen? Oh, yeah. Amen. Spring, Sunday's coming, but spring is on its way. Um, David remained. David stood home. And if you were king of Israel, you fought. You were on the front lines. You don't stay home. There's none of this, you know, situation room in the Old Testament. There's a situation front lines. That you were, if you were king, you set the example. David had 30 bad, I'm telling you, these guys were bad. They called them David's mighty men. You didn't want to mess with these dudes. And he had a great army. But he led by example. But for some reason, he stayed home. Look at the next five words. But David remained in Jerusalem. At the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. David became passive. Joseph stood in Nicholsville. Mary Sue stayed in Versailles. Some of us stayed home. Some of us have been home. But we've not got back into the game. I want to encourage you, if you're watching online, get back in the game. Come back to your church family. Don't neglect the meeting of the assembly like some have done. Come and experience the presence of God here. It's no accident that the very next scripture says this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. But David remained in Jerusalem. That's what happened. What happened with him and Bathsheba and then running two years away from God, that's just a byproduct of him making probably one of the worst decisions in his life to just stay at home when the battle came to his front door. Never do that. And if we're not careful, our complacency will be our catastrophe. And that'll happen in our marriages. That's why we got to be intentional. We have to be all in. We're either running after God or, or we're running away from God, running to the cross or from the cross, like I said earlier. Either you have a purpose-driven marriage or you don't. Either you're a kingdom-guided, kingdom-minded person or you're not. Either you're surrendered to God or you're playing God. Either you're submitted to God or you're submitted to your pride. You're either hot, cold, lukewarm, and God would rather have you hot or cold because if you got one foot in the world and one foot in with Jesus, you take the risk of having Jesus spit you out of his mouth. Complacency and passivity are the trademarks of the lukewarm follower. And you don't ever want to be in those shoes. So let's make sure that we're an all-in, that we're passionate about the pursuit and the love of God, not only in our marriages, but in all of our relationships. And I want to tell you today that you can be an all-in person, an all-in guy, all-in girl, all-in person, despite what you've done, despite what's been done to you, despite what you haven't done, despite what you believe, don't believe, wherever you are on this journey called life, you can have a legacy destination of the power and grace of God through Jesus Christ in your life if you let him, if you let him. But you have to match with all your heart, mind, and soul the love that he has for you. Now listen, there are valuable marriage lessons to be learned through the life of David, but none more 
than Jesus Christ. So if you got your Bibles, go back to the New Testament. Go back to John 13. I want us to look at John's account of the Last Supper real quick with the time that we have. Go to John 13. And I just love this. This is John's account. And look at verse 1 and 2. It says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. I've been wrestling with this all year, this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ greatest person who could ever love spends three and a half years with his disciples loving them teaching them, discipling them but loving them as much as any person could ever love a person he's loving them but in this account of the last supper before he's getting ready to be taken off it says he now at this moment in time he now is showing them the full extent of his love. In other words, whatever love he was holding back, he said, now's the time I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. I want to tell you today, friends, that Jesus Christ is revealing to you the full extent of his love. Today, this Sunday morning, God is reve- if you ever doubted God's love, God wants you to know today that he is ext- he's showing you and revealing to you the full extent of his love through his son, Jesus Christ. You are loved. You are loved and adored by a king. And that makes you a king's kid. And that should do something to you. Now let's pick up the story. What does he do next? Well, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you... I mean, this is an an amazing scene. A, A great demonstration of love. Pick it up in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And then he says this. I believe the word of God is speaking to us this morning. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed if you do them. You'll be blessed if you do them. Let me ask you this. Are your relationships, is your marriage defined by foot washing? Not just physical foot washing. I mean, there was a time in my life I had to come home with a bucket, and water, a towel, and take off the shoes of my daughter and my wife and thank them for forgiving me and giving me another chance. And I vowed to them that day 
that they would never, ever regret that decision. And I will serve them and lead them, and I will be the priest of this home from this day moving forward. And I will glorify God, and I will love Jesus Christ more than I could ever love you, and by doing so, I will love you, my wife, and you, my daughter, more than I could ever love life itself. I've never regretted, and they have never regretted that day. But friends, God is calling us all to be foot washers. I know some of you ain't into the feet thing, but it's not just a physical thing, it's a heart thing. It's a serving thing, it's a loving thing, it's a sacrificial love thing. You know, it's easy to love people that are lovable, not easy to love people who are unlovable. That's who I want to love. Well, then Jesus gives them the bad news. He says this, verse 33. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I'm going to give you a new command, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Of course, Peter's has to speak out and say, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will, you will follow later. And then Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You know, I think about that in the context of marriage vows. I know it's not, you know, a marriage, but, you know, we, I've, been, I've officiated hundreds of weddings, and I've been to a lot of weddings, crazy weddings too. Uh, and, we, and we say these vows, and, we, and some of them are beautiful, some of them are elegant, but to be honest with you, what we should be doing is, a vow should consist of, when I don't do this, when I break this vow, will you still love me? And in essence, Peter was making a vow to Jesus, saying, I, I will never deny you. He says, and, and then we all know what happened. He denied him three times, right? And so Peter, later on, we're going to find out how he gets re- reinstated. But we need, we need this type of love. Jesus gives us further instructions as we sort of bring this to a close. He, he says this, he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me, and who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to, to him. Earlier he said in verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, I have been with you, but it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, the counselor won't come. He not only will be with you, he'll be in you. He will counsel you. He will comfort you. He will guide you in truth. He will tell you everything me and the Father are saying. And so to have a great marriage, to have a great relationship, we need this relationship with ourselves, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father all working together. We need counsel. How many of us as couples ever needed counsel? Your best counsel comes from the comforter, the Holy Spirit, when you're in an abiding relationship with him. And then he says, if you need peace. He says, the peace I give you, the world doesn't offer. 
In other words, you're going to need peace. I see so many couples walking around with no peace. He says, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble. This peace is so, so, so important. And then, I love this prayer that he prays for the disciples. And speaking of weddings, if you're, if you're a couple that's thinking about getting married, or if you know someone getting married, this would be a great prayer for someone after they've done their wedding vows. I want you to look at it in the context of marriage, but I also want you to look at this prayer in the context of us as individuals, because that's what it's meant to be. So I want you to look at it through both lenses. And it's the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 20, for all believers. And here's the prayer. It says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved them. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me, and I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's a picture of a great marriage. That's a picture of unity. That's a picture of Jesus at the center, the Father and the Holy Spirit, and a couple being here and there, putting Christ at the center. So the Bible says two are better than one person standing alone can be easily defeated. Two is better than one, but a triple braided cord cannot easily be broken. You know, when those triple braided strands start intertwining, they get tighter and tighter when, those, when that cord of, of, of three strands gets pulled at both ends. And that's what life does to us. It pulls at us. It attacks us. The devil hates the institution of marriage. Have you figured this out? He hates it. When, a, when couples come together and defy the odds, stay together, offer grace, work through their issues, Glorify God and realize that their best days are ahead of them, not behind them, because of the grace of God. Nothing is impossible. So here's what grace marriage is. Real quick. Let me explain. what. It, so what is grace marriage? Well, we meet. Let me tell you when we meet first. We meet for four hours. Just four hours, four times a year on four Saturdays. Just think of it. Some of you go to a buffet for four hours. You're here four hours. This is just four hours with other couples, 8.15 to 12.15. It's going to start in a couple weeks, February 19th. May 14th will be the second one. August 13th, October 29th. Those are the dates. It's an amazing, amazing ministry. This is year four that we're doing it. What it is, listen, it's husbands and wives get together with other couples in various stages of life to explore different aspects of marriage. They're called marriage coaching. Marriage coaching is an intentional and proactive approach to refocus on the positives. It's not pre-marriage. It's not 
triage the ER room. It's where we focus on the positives in our relationships and take our marriage to a whole new level. It's not a lecture. It's not group therapy. It's not a place where you'd be forced to share your deepest secrets. We even have fun in the sessions. I mean, I brought a game of Twister to mine. Steve brought a game of Sorry to his. One group had the, had the game Battleship. You could tell what kind of group that was. But simply, it's a biblically-based marriage maintenance model that can revolutionize your relationship. Couples in their 20s, couples in their 80s, doesn't matter where you are, even if you're engaged, even if you know someone that's not part of this church, everyone should come to this. There is a cost. It costs $200. It covers all the books. You get books for each session. It covers the snacks and the beverages. It's a good deal. Payment can be submitted at the table. We've got a table outside. You can bring it by this week, next week. You don't even have to bring it by next week. You can just come to the first session, even pay then. And I don't want money to be an issue. See, the cost for four days is just $200. That's $25 a person. I, I want, here's a question for you. Is your marriage worth a $200 investment in four four-hour sessions? I would hope so. I, I would hope so. Any, any, anybody can, can attend. There, there's no, there's no childcare. Um, you sign up by going to the website. Go to churchofthesavior.net. You'll see Grace Marriage. You can, you can sign up there. You don't have to worry about, you won't be able to pay online, but you can pay at the table. You can, again, I don't want money to be an issue. I don't want money to be an issue. Uh, we, every year we get people that give a little extra uh, above their above the $200, and that helps pay for other people. And so if, if, if money is a barrier, don't let that be a barrier for you to come to Grace Marriage. We want you there. We want you there. Uh, whatever, what, if you're going to make a check, make it out to Church of the Savior. Uh, if you need to make any special arrangement, call me. Uh, you can email me, bill at church, churchofthesavior.net. My telephone number is on there, 303-7873. That's my direct line. If if no one answers that line, just call 8675309 and uh, someone. That's for Jenny. She'll, uh, she gets a discount. So if you got that, you're really old. Is there a deadline? Yes, next Sunday. 8675309. Now we're expecting our groups to be full, so please sign up. Also, I want to let you know again listen, four Saturdays. Four four-hour Saturdays. That's it. And I would ask that you mark it on your calendar now, those dates now. And don't schedule anything around it if you can. Invest in, in, in your marriage. We also have another option for younger couples. We have Ryan, who was here earlier, one of our pastors, has a younger couples group that he has on Monday nights. Now, they're not an official Grace Marriage group, but they're doing the Grace Marriage curriculum this year on Monday nights. Not going to do it in, in four sessions. They're going to work through books one and two on Monday nights uh, from now until the summer, take a break in the summer, work on books three and four in the fall. Ryan will be out there. You can get more information from Ryan on that. So, uh, and I'll be out there uh, to answer any of the questions that you may have. Uh, worship team, come on up. I believe that, uh, that for the remainder of our time this morning, that 
the Spirit of God wants us to reflect on three things. One is reflection, one is repentance, and the third one is reinstatement. I believe that some of us are going to have to reflect on what, what they heard today. And you're going to reflect on your relationship with God, where it is today. Whether you need to come home, either for the first time, or you need to have a moment of clarity like David and say, your love is better than life. And some of us need that reinstatement. Just like, just like Peter got reinstated. And, and I love how the book of John ends uh, where Jesus is coming back. He defeats the cross, defeats sin, the grave, the tomb, comes back from the dead just like he said he would. And he's appearing to everyone in pockets. He's appearing to his disciples. He's appearing to them. And, he's, and, he's, and he tells his disciples at one point, after he comes back from the dead, go. Go. He gives them the great commission. Go out and make disciples. Go. Go out into the world. Now listen, maybe it's me. But if, it, it, I was with Jesus for three and a half years. And I called myself a disciple. And, and then Jesus comes back from the dead and is in front of me, talking to me in the, in the flesh, saying, I told you, look at me now. Now go do what I told you to do, what I told you to do. I would think that I would run as fast as I could to tell, to tell every single person in this world that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's alive and well. And there's hope to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the disciples don't do that. Instead of going and making fishers of men, they go back out fishing again. They're on the boat fishing. It's a bad day. It's a bad, they're not catching anything. But Jesus shows up on the shore and he's cooking them breakfast. Think about that. And maybe Jesus is on the shore of your life this morning. And he's cooking you breakfast. And he tells them, hey, how's your day going? Not too good. He says, why don't you throw your net on the other side? They do. They catch 153 fish. They said, this guy must be good. Let's get some more tips. Let's come on in. As they come on in, they realize it's Jesus. Jesus doesn't call out anybody else, just one person out of the whole crew. Who does he call? Peter. And then Jesus grabs Peter. He has this encounter where he's this close. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable situation. I could just see him being really, really close to Peter. And he grabs him. And he looks Peter in the eye. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep. And he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt. And he would ask him again. And he said, very well, then feed my lambs. And then he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Very well then, feed my sheep. And Peter got his marching orders. Peter got his marching orders. Peter got reinstated. And I believe the Spirit of God is saying us, to us this morning, do you love me? Do you love me? Then go make your marriage great. Go make your relationships great. Go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all my commands. I love Luke's account of communion in the Last Supper. John doesn't mention the elements. So if you got your elements with you, I love this account. In Luke, go to Luke 22 if you're with me. I'll just read it to you. Verse 15, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I don't know why that stuck out to me. I've read this passage for... 20-some-odd years. And it never stuck out to me like it did this weekend. If I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I want to tell you today, when you take communion, you'll find fulfillment in the kingdom of God because of Jesus Christ. That's why we take communion. He goes on to say this. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus in his parables would say, the kingdom of God is near and the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God lives inside of you. I want to tell you today that when we take communion and then we pursue God passionately, there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So when we take communion, we we look at the elements, the piece of bread, we have to examine ourselves. You see, that's the reflection, that's the repentance, that's all part of the reinstatement. Now, if there's some thing that you're going through, there's some sin that you're still stuck in, that you're not willing to walk away from, that's okay. I would urge you to do so. But this part of the service, I would ask that you'd make it just a reflection time. Because you don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. And in a couple minutes, after we take communion, I'm going to open up the altar. I'm going to ask you to come forward. And whatever business you need to do with God, reflection, repentance, reinstatement, to pray about your marriage, to pray about your life, to pray about the pursuit of God, in your life, the the relentless love of God. Come to the altar. The Spirit of God is here. Before that, let's take communion. This piece of bread represents the body that was broken for you. Let's all take together.
This juice represents the wine and the blood that was shed for you. Anybody grateful for the blood? There's power in the blood. Let's take together. Father, we honor you with a relentless pursuit of your spirit that chases us down. You have sent the hounds of heaven chasing us down far too long and we've not responded accordingly. But today we reflect, repent, and we ask to be reinstated into your grace. We accept Jesus Christ as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior, and the forgiver of our sins. Open up our hearts to him. We rededicate our lives to him. And we reject complacency. And we thank you for the grace for all of our catastrophes that have kept us all these years. Thank you for your wonderful grace. Now, Holy Spirit, speak, your church is listening, and minister to everyone in the power of your love and the power of your truth as they come forward. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this last song to really begin to pray for our families in this church. 
and um, just let this last song um, just be singing out a prayer that the Lord um, would bless us and keep us and make his face shine upon us, give us grace. Um, The enemy is after our families. And so this is a great time for us to just join together and pray that his presence would um, touch um, our families and the generations that come after us. So let's stand together as we sing this song. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to Lord, turn his face toward you and give you
favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you all around you and within you he is with you he is with you in the morning in the evening and you're coming and you're going and you're weeping and rejoicing he is for you 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 he is for God good or what? Oh, God. Come on, that's just patty cake. I said, is God good or what? Come on now. Your love is better than life. Your love. I'm just so grateful for my wife, Carolyn, who introduced me to that love. I was incapable of loving till the night that Carolyn came home and said, Bill, God would never give up on you. I'm not giving up on you. God can forgive you for anything that you've ever done, and so can I. 
I don't know if I could ever forget what you've done, but I'm willing to give it a try if you're willing to give your life to Jesus Christ. God revealed his love to me that night. He forgave me despite me and demonstrated that love to me through my wonderful wife. And this April 28th, Lord willing, we'll be married 38 years. I feel sorry for you guys, but I got God's best. You've got God's best too. Love each other as Jesus has loved you. God bless you. Go to that four-hour buffet. Don't feel any guilt. Just sign up for Grace Marriage first and pick up your kids. God bless you. Jesus for the first time today, please reach out to us. We would love to help you take your next step. Please visit our website for information on upcoming events and how you can connect with the COS family. There is also a prayer request form where you can let us know how we can pray for you. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope to see you next week.